Waxman, and we are again at uh, my next guest is, and this time it's uh, Dr. Aaron Kaplan, who is the Director of Research, Heart and Vascular Center at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center uh, in New Hampshire. And Dr. Kaplan is a practicing interventional cardiologist and medical device entrepreneur. He chairs also the Dartmouth Device uh, Symposia 3D, and more importantly, he owns uh, more than 50 patents and was induced into the National Academy of Inventors uh, class of 2015. He has a BS in Engineering Sciences, cum laude, from Tufts University, MD from Wake Forest University, medical training at Northwestern University, and cardiology training at Stanford University. But for me, I was always impressed since I met Aaron over 20 years ago as an inventor, not just an interventionist, because many of us are interventionists, but to find an inventor with so many devices, it's really endangered species. So welcome, Aaron. Thank you, Ron. It's good to see you. And I think it may have been more than 20 years ago. Possible. Yeah, but we round numbers nowadays. Yes. So let me ask you, what drives you? I know you have a background in engineering, but what drives you to continue to invent devices? And obviously you're in a physician and you're an interventional cardiologist, but are you sure you picked up the right profession? Well, um, well, the, the short answer is yes. And I think one of the things that really drove me to um, interventional cardiology was really early on, I remember as a resident, seeing um, Richard Myler give a presentation on one of the first angioplasties when I was at Northwestern. And um, it was kind of just eye-opening. I, I remember it very well. It was a proximal LAD and all of the, um, I, I never seen anything like it. Um, and it really resonated with the engineer uh, in me. As you said, I, I started life as a mechanical engineer um, and um, at Tufts, uh, engineering science was my major and I had a life science bio um, uh, major as well or concentration. And I've always been interested in that and that, um, you know, I found my way to cardiology. And when I got to Stanford, it was allowing me to re- join my engineering uh, interest uh, with my uh, clinical interest. And that to me, you know, um, early on, my first baptism was actually a Perclose. Um, I was not the driver, that was John Simpson, but at a ringside seat. And what really was so gripping to me was the process. Um, and I see my role as really defining problems. And that's, and I, I love the clinic, um, but I also, um, I'm about finding uh, problems and I come up with ideas for solutions, constructs, and then I work with engineers who um, really are real engineers. Um, I have an engineer training, but I'm not a real engineer, but I'm, I'm more of a designer. And I saw this so beautifully with uh, Perclose, with John Simpson articulating, you know, in those days, you will call, we were doing DCAs, I think 10 French sheets, we do a beautiful LAD intervention, and we would booger up the groin, uh, have to go to the cath um, to the operating room and watch them divide the inguinal ligament and make up. And I remember Simpson just being frustrated. They make a long incision this long to put in one stitch. And he said, you know, if we can teach a catheter how to take out tissue at the end of 100 centimeters, we should be able to figure out how to do one centimeter, you know, a, a stitch at end of one centimeter. And the other in insight was, 
And, you know, he's a Texan. You have miles of Texas in terms of, you know, putting the, um, all the, um, the functionality of the device you know, that goes up the uh, um, in, um, iliacs and into the aorta and seeing him and saying, and you also, they do that really for one stitch. And we should be able to do that. And that was per close and having a ringside seat and watching that was just, you know, uh, really enabling. And, and my lives really have a life in what kind of regulatory policy, but that came out of being a clinician and doing this inventor type stuff and those world kind of collided FDA and CMS. So it's a very, you know, um, diverse, you know, endeavor that I find myself in the middle of. Yeah, indeed. Um, I mean, I think John Simpson is probably the exemplar of someone who invented so many devices and he always was able also to execute, to exit those uh, very successfully. And really, as you mentioned, uh, look at the unmet need and design around it a device. I looked at some of those uh, companies that you were involved, Conformal Medical, Triton uh, Medical, uh, Local Med. Uh, you know, I'm sure there are much more than that. There is one that you are now involved in LA Closure. But if you have to look at the one, and you mentioned a lot about Periclose, uh, which was the one that you thought would be the biggest contribution for you from your side as an inventor? Oh, that's a hard one. It's like, you know, which one of your kids do you like more? Um, I can talk about each one. Let me start with my first and my last. Um, local med, I was a, um, a fellow um, at Stanford. I was doing platelet research um, and that I would take arteries um, wherever I could find them in pig necks and explanted coronaries. I put them in a bath. I'd run blood and radio label platelets. And I was looking at the first 2B3 inhibitors, direct thrombin inhibitors, and really came up with the idea that I also, I could show that I could get as much antiplatelet effect by taking the arteries out and um, bathing them in heparin. And that was the idea behind local med. And the initial idea of local med was allied to the same problem Perclose was trying to find. You'll recall when you know, in the first days of stenting, when we had these patients on diperidomol, we were bringing the cumin, the PT up and we're bringing the heparin down. I remember we can do, you know, very long holds. If you put one head one way, one head the other way, you can hold two groins at once. And they were long holds because the patients were anticoagulated. My idea at that point was, let me have a catheter that can infuse the area locally with heparin and take all that stuff out. Now the need, what was the need? The need was, how do you get your equipment out get hemostasis while um, anticoagulating the area, which we thought we needed at the time. That actually problem was solved by Columbo with high pressure balloon inflation and thienopyridines and not that other stuff. But I thought that was gonna be, a, it was the science of that was uh, very sound. And then that um, went into really a restenosis company where I think the science maybe was not as good. So that was a big impact. Yeah, that's where we met, I think. Uh, yes, that's where we person. met, I remember. <clears throat> um, very clearly when you were uh, in Atlanta. Um, yeah. The other thing right now, I'm very focused on conformal medical uh, in the LAA closure space. Um, and as you said, I had, um, a, I looked at this um, almost 20 years ago um, when I was working with a laparoscopic surgery company and we were doing a pig and I had them poke 
um, up from the diaphragm and get me into the pericardial space and doing pericardioscopic LAA closure. And unfortunately, the first one worked great. Um, and then working with Tom Fogarty, um, we did a bunch of animals and we couldn't quite get closure because of the anatomy. The, the appendage is not um, a gallbladder. It doesn't have a neck. It doesn't have its own blood supply. But I was just really enamored by the idea of LAA closure um, and that, you know, um, patients on anticoagulants, um, it's for some, but it's not for so many. And conformal, the whole concept is to take LAA closure and really um, turn that into a procedure that's more like a PFO closure with one doc, doing this under ice-guided transeptal and everything else really fluoro and angio. Because um, I think that's what's get to the next level. And then again, my role is to kind of define the problem, um, working with a, an exceptional team of a buddy who I knew from college, who was a real engineer, Andy Levine. We founded the company together uh, and really Andy's built a team. But my idea was like, look, we, if we used a foam and we, I, we became aware of a, a sponge um, type of a foam, that's really a matrix that doesn't get degraded. I said, if we can do it with a, a foam-based construct, we won't need the precise sizing that's now required. We won't need the precise placement. And I, don't, I won't have time to get really into technology, but my role was to say, you know, we need something that really is almost one size fits all. We have two sizes that can be delivered in patients under conscious sedation routinely that doesn't require a, you know, a very sophisticated understanding of, you know, inside the left atrium ice. And so it's defining that problem and being really specific about if we, if we can do that, then it can bring real value to patients. And if the docs see that, then, then it aligns with a very good business proposition. So I read on your bio over 50 patents and they're expensive. I mean, today to file a patent, it's a lot of money. So I have two questions. I mean, how do you find the funding for that and also to develop the prototypes and, you know, tell me a little bit about that process. And also, uh, you always were in academia. So you are at Dartmouth now and before, I mean, I look at all your uh, institutions. Uh, so you had to work with the institution, which many of the inventors find maybe a conflict. There's always a very fine line between uh, intellectual proprietary, who that belongs to. So maybe you can talk to those who really wants to get into that mm -hmm. uh, a little bit from your experience and what would your be your advice if they still want to stay in academia? Right. Well, so there's two part two questions there. The first one, I got, I have a, a grundle of plat patents. It's I think nearly over 50, um, and they really come in families. Um, and though early on, after kind of you know, so I I have an idea. Um, we can talk about. Uh, locum that we talked about how to infuse heparin into the artery. I had some crude concepts and I got together with a, a very good engineer, uh, Enrique Klein, who also was a driver of the engineer uh, um, behind Perclose and with Andy uh, Levine and Dave Melanson at Conformal. Um, define that problem. But after that, the next most important person actually is our patent attorney. Because, and, I, and you know, I'll talk with people say, you know, Aaron, I'm not interested in, you know, the IP and I really want 
you know, to give this idea to my patients. I'm not interested in the financial. And that may be true for many, but it's not true for investors. And in order to get funding, you know, they want to know, you know, um, the two parts of patenting is, can you do it? And can you keep other people from doing it? You know, freedom to operate and patentability. Um, so early on, having someone integrated, and there's some very good people uh, out there who I've worked with, Gerard von Hoffman, Jim Heslin, are two names, and they work early on with you to really understand how you define things, um, and they're integral. And so typically my approach is work, if once I have a construct which I think works, and I rarely talk to a patent attorney without working with an engineer and doing as much as I can, because you're right, they're, they're expensive. And um, they're one of the, and you have to pay kind of going rate early on, but early on you can get a read. I will typically budget in the area of 5K to sit down with someone and they could put together a provisional. And at that point in our current kind of post GATT environment, you can then talk to others. Uh, and it's, a, it's an iterative process. And this is something that universities don't get unlike molecules that the uh, per-closed device that John Simpson started with with the initial idea and the IP, the, um, that was the first gen. The IP, portions of the IP, maybe I shouldn't be talking about another deal, um, was down the road after you've run around the track, what's really you know, important and what's really protectable. So you need a, a patent attorney um, do a provisional upfront. And then a provisional actually has a year before you have to make it public. And if you can't get you know, um, support within that year. You know, I'm, I'm excited about everything my kids tell me and, and they're not wrong. Um, if I can't get you or some investors excited by one year that maybe it's not as exciting as I thought. And that's why I have 50 patents and, you know, um, only I think three of those ideas have ever hit the clinic. Um, so that's number one. Uh, then finding the environment has been very hard. I mean, Dartmouth has been very supportive of me when I came here, I kind of, you know, was able to establish those grounds. The most important thing for me, and this really comes from working early on with people like Simpson and Fogarty, was I, I'm a clinician. That's how I understand problems. So I need a place. I'm in my scrubs that I actually brought a fancy shirt, but I got pulled into uh, a case. Um, but to me, it's, you know, living in the lab, okay, my, I'd say blood and radiation, and seeing really where the problems are. Um, and that helps me define that problem and really define it. So that's integral. And then finding a place that will allow me to run. At Dartmouth has um, established a very interesting IP dynamic. One was, was really the old kind of um, by Dole concept of the institution owns it, they'll, they'll develop the IP. Then they have another pathway where it allows um, the inventor to run with it. Uh, and if you get funding, they uh, take some uh, a modest portion of the um, uh, initial uh, equity. And that point is that if you really want entrepreneurial faculty, you have to let entrepreneurs be entrepreneurs. But I think the other thing in terms of conflict of interest is to be upfront about it. Now, it may have hurt me at times, but no one ever heard a bifurcation talk without knowing that I was the Triton inventor. Um, and to be upfront, and some people have issues with that. Um, I think it brings important insights that um, gives me a slightly different perspective. It does make me a better interventionist and then be upfront when you're in public. And then 
actually one of the biggest issues I had when Triton, which is the bifurcation company I was involved when it became approved, um, actually the conflicts of me using my own device was, um, was, was, was difficult and um, decided really not to use it. Um, and, um, but you know, the conflicts are there and you have to negotiate them if you, I believe that the doc's role is defining the problem and interventional cardiology has been founded from the very beginning, Grunzig, with, you know, how do you get, how do you deliver barotrauma tra uh, to, you know, a um, isolated lesion? Although you can do some mitigation, if you actually tell the patient that you're the inventor and you get compensation for that. Many patients yeah. actually look at this, oh my, great, uh, this is a great opportunity. I have the inventor doing the procedure on me. He, he must know everything about the procedure. But I think as long as you disclose it, sometimes you have to add it to the consent yeah. form. I wrote a paper early on with Don Bain, who was one of the clear, clearest thinkers, I think, in our group, who we miss. Um, and he kind of said, you know, patients know when they come to you, you get paid for it. Those are conflicts. But um, Don's, uh, it's called the BAME doctrine. If the patient is confused when they're talking to me, am I their doctor or I am an inventor of a device? If there's that confusion, then that gets to be a little bit hard to navigate. Uh, and that's, and, and also everyone's got to figure it out for themselves. I do think it's crucial for the uh, inventor for like first in human to be around um, and part of the um, a process with very defined rules because um, having insights of how the device really works is key to mitigate, you know, um, uh, safety issues. Yeah, and they, I mentioned uh, again, you also very much involved, and you mentioned that too in policy, regulatory policy. And I remember a title of a talk that you gave me for CRT two years ago. Why do you see all the technology going offshore? But that was over a decade ago, maybe more. And now it looks it's completely different. So tell me what actually made the change. Uh, we don't see any more the technology going offshore. We see actually people from overseas coming here to have their first demand, the EFS program. What really made that change? I think there are really two things. Um, one we can feel good about, and one is really independent of ours, meaning the, the American community's um, control. Uh, I think the FDA deserves huge credit. Um, I remember, you know, I um, chair this symposium, the 3D symposium. Um, and watching the conversation go from, you know, look, you know, uh, inventors, you know, do your thing, go off to Europe. And when you're ready to do real good science, come here. And if that you have a problem with that, you know, pound salt. That was really the old thinking. And, and that, that really is not really fair, but um, we'll use that for now. But they did see very classically, you know, um, Perclose is true of this, Locomed was true of this, where it was US patent holders, um, startup companies from the Silicon Valley, early clinical work done here, first clinical use at terrific centers, um, uh, Eberhard Grube um, uh, in Europe. Um, and um, that was the, the model. And I think that FDA kept on hearing this and really under the, um, Jeff Shearn's leadership, who's um, the director of CDRH, 
along with Bram Zuckerman, uh, and Andy uh, Farb, and I'm sure I'm forgetting others, really championed this. And I don't think we realize the heavy lift this was from the FDA perspective. Um, things like just-in-time review, uh, and also acknowledging that a device that gets tested in a very limited small number of patients, the kind of group risk of that is different than a commercialized device. Um, so they really, and it, one of the unusual things about the story is that we were trying to keep up with FDA. And there's been a, other, the community actually has really worked hard, the MDIC um, is a public-private partnership that really has helped facilitate this um, and that uh, people um, like David Holmes, Marty Leon, Mike Mack um, have championed it uh, from the clinician side, but there's been some business leaders too, uh, Chip Hans. So there's really been a collaborative effort. Um, initially at FDA, I'm now figuring out what makes a good site. Um, and um, that's been really uh, thrilling to watch. The other part of the equation um, is a little bit sadder, I think, because um, um, there are a lot of suburb uh, partners and sites, uh, particularly in Europe. And there are two things that have gone on in Europe. One is the transition from an MDD to an MDR dynamic, where um, they have changed, they've gone to, uh, uh, from a directive uh, to a policy um, um, type dynamic. And I think I'm getting the terminology wrong. But um, in that transition, they went from a number of notified bodies to now very few. Uh, it's really unclear. Um, I've been involved with a, a company and it's hard to just get someone to really answer questions. So there's huge uncertainty. We know that it's gonna be harder to go to Europe. We know, uh, but we're not actually sure exactly what that looks like. The other part of the equation is that um, the pricing in Europe, there's been a lot of compression. It used to be you went to Europe to get good clinical data, but you also went um, to Europe to kind of prove commercialization. Uh, and that's a lot harder to do now uh, because of the uh, business environment uh, over there. And it's, it's kind of sad in, um, in that the, our European colleagues, and they've really developed some really important competencies for the ecosystem that we're really not tapping into as well. I don't think this should be seen as an us versus them. The, one of the thrilling things about being in our community, it really is international. It's true at your meeting. Uh, you see it all the time uh, in the bridges you've built uh, to Europe and uh, Japan. Um, this, is a, this is a worldwide problem um, that demands a collaborative worldwide solution. And it does hurt me uh, to see that the current dynamic is really not favoring some very well-developed resources and sites uh, in Europe. So uh, we left a few minutes. I just actually move out of uh, the medical topics. Uh, you seem to be very busy. I mean, taking care of patients, taking care of devices, innovations, policy. Do you have any free time to do something that you like other than these? Any hobbies or fun thing that you like to do? Um, actually, yes, um, actually, but um, a couple of things. I do, you know, I, um, I'm one of five boys and my oldest brother, who is clearly the smartest and the wisest is, you know, saying every time, Aaron, I don't want to hear about, you know, how hard you work, you know, because you, you pick these poisons and then and, and he's right. Uh, but I am really um, very fortunate. I have a lot of uh, passions. Um, I live in a beautiful area in Vermont and uh, even actually in the winter, I'm um, very much devoted to my, um, in addition to my family, 
two daughters and wife who are terrific. Um, I, um, I worked something called the Big Green Egg, which is this um, lump charcoal grill. And um, if I don't, um, I don't, I have a new computer, I would show you um, all the um, um, atho uh, atherogenic um, things I've done on that grill. Um, and um, quite, um, you know, enthusiastic about it. Uh, and the other thing I, I do a lot, particularly uh, in the summer here, is is, is cycle um, with COVID, which um, has been so terrible for so many. Uh, for me personally, it kept me from traveling. You know, this last kind of cycle season, I bicycled more than 90 times uh, and was able to justify getting another bicycle. I won't disclose how many I have, but not as many as Marv Slepian, by the way, if you talk with him. But, um, but you know, really enjoying that, especially you know, living in the mountains uh, in um, uh, New Hampshire and Vermont. That's great. Any of your kids following the, the steps of his dad in terms of medicine or engineering? Not, not in medicine, but they're doing really interesting things. I have two daughters, um, and this is great because they're now 25 and 26, and it's hard to embarrass them, so I'll mention them now. Um, but uh, my eldest, Ella, is a UX designer. Uh, this is user experience. You know, you look at your phone, you touch an icon, what happens next? And it's very much design. And listening to her um, is really interesting. And it's really interesting embedded into their thought is, you know, testing right away, A-B testing. Um, so that's been really, and with COVID, um, though she may not like it, I like it. Uh, she was living in the Upper East Side of New York, um, rooming with my other daughter. Um, and she's up um, living with us now. She'll be moving back uh, to the city. Uh, my youngest daughter um, uh, works at a um, social media ad agency uh, called Full Screen. And um, I'm not sure I should be mentioning names, uh, but it's also very interesting that, you know, um, working with social media um, and, you know, uh, seeing how that world, the advertised world is uh, changing. So um, it's um, really um, uh, exciting to see, and I'm learning a lot, though they're not going, following my footsteps uh, in medicine, they clearly are in innovation. And it's, it's, it's fun to watch. Aaron, it's terrific talking to you. I sure we could have done uh, three hours of going through all the discoveries, innovations, policies, uh, but our time is up. So I'd like to thank you very much for your contribution to the field. I'd like to wish you a lot of success with the LA closure, which is currently ongoing effort. And to see you face to face in a meeting like we used to do in the past, it's not so much to hear the lectures, but just to shake hands, to talk, what are you doing now? How are you progressing? And that's why we started this, uh, my next guest is because we just cannot meet each other anymore. So at least we try to be a little bit more personal through this session. So thank you very much. Well, it's a great honor. And uh, Ron, I, I um, remember uh, meeting you when I was having a, I probably an interview um, with Spencer King down at Emory and you were in the back room working on um, a way to cure restenosis. Um, and um, it's um, really um, been uh, impressive to see, you know, how your career has evolved as well and appreciate um, the opportunity here. And I look forward to seeing you face-to-face -face, um, at CRT very soon. Thank you, Aaron. Bye-bye.